This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly sermon podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's sermon. I uh, want specifically want to say it's great to be back. And uh, I'm so excited to be able to speak to you this morning. I am very, very well rested. Thank you for all of your prayers. Um, I had a great time on sabbatical. Monica and I are now living in a house. Yes. We have ended our five years of homelessness. It's an amazing concept to sleep, eat, and take a shower all in the same building. That's pretty good. We're having a lot of fun with that. Um, I want to say a special thank you to Kevin, Bob, and Gordon, who did just an outstanding job of instructing you from God's Word. I've heard from well-deserved. It's an illustration of what makes this church such a wonderful church. And that is, the church is a, it's a combination of so many people doing what God has gifted and called them to do. And I know Bob's spoken to you about that in terms of working on the building at uh, Clegg Street and so forth. So, uh, how fun. I want you to finish this statement. When the cat's away, there you go. When I left, the title of this sermon series was A Logical Look at a God-Centered Worldview. When I got back, it was Case for Christianity. What happened? And a cat was away in the mice play. That's how it was. Uh, actually, that title, The Case for Christianity, is probably shorter and easier to remember, so I'm okay with that. But I want to take just a couple of minutes and tell you why originally I had titled this series A Logical Look at a God-Centered Worldview. And that is, well, first of all, let's take the concept of a worldview. Your particular worldview has tremendous influence in your life. In fact, the values and choices that give shape to your life come directly from your worldview. Now let me give you an example. I have a little two-year-old grandson who's soon to be three. His name is Silas, and his entire worldview can be wrapped up in one word. Food. Now I'm going to show you how pervasive this is his life. I, t- I told you that Monica and I moved into a house, right? So we moved into the house. There's boxes everywhere. Stuff is not all unpacked. And Poppy, what's this room? Oh, it's the kitchen. Poppy, what's this room? It's a pantry. And he goes in and he opens a drawer in the pantry and he says, there's not enough food in here. <laughs> Literally, that's what he said as he pointed to the drawer. There's like three boxes of food and there's not enough food in here. Every person that comes into the house that's new, he goes straight. We have two drawers of snacks, right? He goes straight and he shows them. That's, you want to know what this house is about? It's about snacks. That's his worldview. It flavors everything that he does. All of his choices, most of his choices in life come right out of that worldview. Now, you might not know what your worldview is, but it isn't because you don't have one. It's only because you haven't taken the time to stop and think about what it is that drives the choices and the values that you make and choose. Now, the second principle that goes right along with that is this. There are very logical reasons 
for you and everyone else in the world to choose a God-centered worldview. And this entire sermon series, whether it's Case for God or Case for the Bible that I'm going to talk to you about this morning or next week, Case for Jesus, or the following week, Case for Life After Death, all of those are about a God-centered worldview. And I want to tell you this, having a God-centered worldview is absolutely necessary for you to learn how to live life right on this earth. It begins with a God-centered worldview. And so I want you to know that there are logical reasons for it. You see, in the media, Christians are most often portrayed as people who are kind of big-hearted but weak-brained. You know what I mean? Kind of nice people who mean well and they try hard, but they certainly are misinformed and there certainly is nothing substantive that they would build their lives on that has any relationship to the truth or how things really are. Christians are these people that somehow are not satisfied with the fact that life was an accident and they have to have meaning in life. And so in order to have meaning in life, they've invented the system of myths and legends and traditions that that they're willing to build their life around and pretend that these things are true, even though we don't think they are. Well, I want to tell you this morning and in this entire sermon series that we are just going to scratch the surface of the tremendous volume of information that's available, that is substantive and evidential when it comes to Christianity. In fact, one of my biggest challenges was how to take this this particular topic and squeeze it down into three or four statements I could give you because there are vast, whole vast areas of the case for the Bible I'm not even going to touch. Whole People that have given their whole lives to studying certain aspects of of evidence behind the Bible, I'm not even going to touch in in many of those areas. You see, for some of you, Bob talked last week that there's a thing that God's put in all of us, which is an innate sense that He exists. And in order to be an atheist, we kind of have to even deny that part of our nature. Denial is nothing new for most of us, right? Yeah, we, we all live in some form of denial, I think, many times. I think there's also in us an innate sense that when we pick up the Bible and read it, there's something in the human spirit that resonates with the Bible. Always has and always will. And for some of you, that's all you need. It's all you've ever needed. You picked up the Bible, you read it, you said, that makes sense to me, I resonate with that. I have no trouble believing it's God's Word because it's too closely and intrinsically tied with the nature of my human spirit and human soul, and you were off and running, you needed nothing beyond that. That's okay, it doesn't mean that you're weak-minded, it just means that's all you need. There are some of us, however, who need cold, hard facts. I'm thinking of a good friend of mine uh, who now lives in Boise, Idaho, but a few years ago we both lived in Honolulu. And Doug and his wife had started coming to the church that I pastored about a year earlier. And he called me up one day and said, can I take you to lunch? And I said, sure. And we sat down at lunch. And and Doug was a very well-known and well-respected businessman in the Honolulu community. His background was in finance and business. And he was the president and general manager of two television stations in town, including the NBC station, which was the largest station in Honolulu. And... uh, And so uh, Doug's a very analytical guy. And we sat down and he said, you know, 
I must confess, when my wife and I started coming to church about a year ago, neither one of us had any intention to become a Christian. That wasn't why we came to church. We were pregnant with our first child and we said we want to raise our child in a safe and in a conservative environment. And we figured where could you be safer and more conservative than in a church? So we looked up a church and yours sounded pretty good and we came to it and we've been coming ever since. But he said the deal is now this. We've been coming a year and the case that you make for Christianity is very, very strong and we find ourselves at a fork in the road that we're either going to have to choose to become Christians or we're going to have to turn around and walk away because we can't play church any longer. I'm sure God was going, thank you, Doug. It's about time you got on with the program. But then Doug said this, so, you know, you talk about God and, and that, that kind of, that, that makes a lot of sense. And you talk about how to live and that makes a lot of sense. And you talk about Jesus and that makes a lot of sense. But all of that stuff, it all comes out of the Bible. And he said, if I'm going to make a choice and I'm going to build my life on a single choice, I don't want to just cross my fingers and hope that it's true. So is there any evidence that the Bible is anything other than just a great book that some people wrote? Because I'm not willing to build my life on it if that's all it is. You know something, I think Doug speaks for volumes of people in this world, including myself. I was not willing to build my life on something and just hope that it turned out to be true. So what I'm going to share with you this morning is just a tiny portion of the research that I've done on which my faith rests that corroborates the fact that the Bible is what it says to be. I want you to use your imagination with me for just a minute this morning. And suppose there's a table here and on the table is a large stack of books. And that stack of books represents all of the written literature of human history. There's comic books in there, there's fiction books in there, there's novels in there, there's biographies in there, there's historical records in there, there's instruction manuals in there. It's all of the written literature of human history. And I hold a Bible in my hand and the question is, where do I put it in the stack? Some people would say, you know where you should put the Bible? You should put it at or very near the bottom. Now this is a very, very small minority of people, but they're very, very vocal in their opinion. And they would tell you the Bible is among the worst books ever written. Let me read you a couple of quotes. Francois-Marie Arouette, 18th century French deist. And you've probably read him in school, but you didn't recognize his name because his pen name was Voltaire. Here's what he said. Whoever will take the trouble to read attentively will find in the pages of the Old Testament where it is cited only an obvious abuse of words and the seal of falsehood on almost every page. If you ask Voltaire, where do you put the Bible? He would say you put it at or very near the bottom because it lies on every page. Thomas Paine, if you've ever studied American history, Thomas Paine was one of the guys behind the Revolutionary War and wrote some very influential pamphlets just prior to the Revolutionary War. Here's what Thomas Paine said. It is from the Bible that man has learned cruelty, rape, and murder. Yeah, he would say, you take the Bible, you put it on the bottom of the stack. 
my mind is drawn to what a talk show caller, you know, just a talk show host, and they were talking about various subjects in that particular day. The subject of the Bible came up, and a guy called in, and this is what he said. Anyone who has read the Bible knows it's full of bad history, worse science, and terrible psychology. Sooner or later, smart people will figure this out, and the whole thing will go away. Now, I don't know who that guy was, but he shows a very uh, significant lack of understanding of history because the fact that the Bible will go away, well, the fact that it's 2,000 years old, just the New Testament, the Old Testament is 4,000 years old, parts of it. The fact that last year, you know how many Bibles were printed, sold, and distributed around the world? Over a billion. That's a billion with a B. We're not talking about a million bestseller. We're talking about a billion bestseller, and it's done that every year for decades. I don't think it's going away. Okay. Now, I am going to borrow his outline, however, because what I'm going to talk to you about over the next several minutes is, is the Bible really bad history? Is it worse science, and is it terrible psychology? That sounded to me like a very good outline for, for the Bible. So I'm going, to, I'm going to be kind enough to borrow that from him. But uh, he certainly would put the Bible at the bottom of the stack. But there are other people who would say, oh, no, 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 that's not fair to the Bible because the Bible is a great book. In fact, it's one of the greatest books ever written. It's helped a lot of people. It's sold more copies than any book that's ever been printed. certainly has had a wider distribution than anything that's ever been printed. I think the Bible would belong at or near the very top because yeah, it's, it's a terrific piece of literature. There are other people saying, no, 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 that's not fair to the Bible. It's not just at or near the top. I believe the Bible should be on the very top because it has outsold all other books. It has certainly helped more people cumulatively than any other book that's ever been written, published, or, or sold. I believe it fits on the very top of the stack. And then there's still one more group of people. And they would tell you the Bible doesn't belong on that stack because the Bible belongs on a stack all of its own. Because this is all of the literature of human history, but the Bible's not of human origin. The Bible is of divine origin, and it belongs in a stack all by itself. I want to tell you that's where I believe the Bible belongs. It doesn't belong with the rest of the literature of human history. It is the one and only book that claims and for which there is evidence of a divine origin. Let me read to you what the Bible says about itself. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, a couple of things I want you to see. Out of First of all, it's God-breathed. It's not God-written. That's different. God didn't take a pen in hand and write it, but God breathed it. God used human people, but He told them what to write. It's as if He breathed or spoke that word to them and they wrote it down. Secondly, you'll notice that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Would you say the Bible claims to have fairly good psychology then? I would guess so. Those are all psychological terms. That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's it's a, it claims to have wonderful psychology. Now let me read you one other passage in 2 Peter chapter 1. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture 
ever came from the prophet's own understanding. This wasn't a group of wise guys who sat down on three different continents over 1,400 years, 40 different ones of them, without talking to each other, and they somehow were all smart enough that they kind of figured out the same thing about God. They figured out the same thing about life. They figured out the same thing about Jesus. They figured out the same thing about the beginning of the world. They figured out the same thing about the end of the world because they all came to a common understanding. They wrote it down, and we have that book today, and that's pretty cool. Well, first of all, the chances of that happening are almost nil. But that isn't how it happened. What's in the Bible didn't come from man's understanding. In fact, he goes on to say how it came, or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. So that's what the Bible says about itself. And this morning, we're going to take that and we're going to put it to three very, very simple tests. And we're going to borrow the outline from our talk show caller friend who said, who mentioned three things in regard to the Bible. He mentioned history, he mentioned science, and he mentioned psychology. So let's kind of take those three things of the Bible and put them to the test this morning. Okay? So let's start with the first one. I want you to understand that the Bible is not primarily a book of history. It's not primarily a book of science. It's not primarily a book of psychology. So you're not going to go to the Bible and make this your historical text. However, in revealing His plan for man, God does... Let's go back one screen. In revealing His plan for man, God does record some history. And he does uh, make reference to some science. And he does convey some psychology. And if it's God who actually wrote or breathed the Scripture into existence, even in these non-central areas, we would still expect what God has to say to be absolutely accurate. So that's what we're going to talk about. Bible history. Is it accurate or inaccurate? Let me read you four statements of history. And um, those of you who are students of recent history, please feel free to tell me if these statements are true or false. Okay? Statement number one. Operation Desert Storm was a military operation carried out in northern Africa by a coalition of armed forces from more than a dozen countries led by the United States for the purpose of freeing Kuwait from the rule of Iraq. True statement or false? It's false. What's wrong with that statement? It wasn't Northern Africa, right? Okay? Because good history gets its geography correct. Let me read you a second statement. Operation Desert Storm began when a U.S. stealth bomber dropped a bomb on a communications tower in downtown Baghdad at precisely 2.36 a.m. on December 25, 2001. True or false? Everything is true in that statement except for the date. It was 2.36 a.m., but it was actually on January 17, 1991. You see, good history gets its dates correct. Number three, Operation Desert Storm was in response to Iraqi Prime Minister Fidel Castro's recent invasion of Kuwait. They laughed about that in the first service. That's when all the non-historical students wake up and go, I know the answer to that one. Okay? Of course, it was Saddam Hussein. Good history gets its people correct. Last of all, Operation Desert Storm was considered a failure by some citizens of the United States 
because the armed forces of Saddam Hussein proved to be far superior to those of the coalition of nations who came against him. It's false. Why? Because the storyline's incorrect. The players are correct. Storyline's incorrect. Here's what I want you to know about good history. Good history gets its geography, its dates, its people, and its storylines correct. So what about the history of the Bible? Is there a way to test that? Well, I want to give you three short examples. The first example is the example of Moses. For centuries, people who didn't believe the Bible and people who scoffed at the Bible and were skeptical said, the Bible very clearly says that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, but we know that's impossible because the time period in which Moses claimed to live, we know, is preliterate. People couldn't write. People couldn't read back in those days. So it would have been impossible for Moses to have written the first five books of the Bible. And that was considered by secular historians to be true. They said the Bible has bad history. We know what good history is. And because the history in the Bible doesn't square with the history we know, the history in the Bible is bad. Then about 200 years ago, a tremendous discovery was made over there in northern Africa in which they unearthed um, lots of uh, records and tablets and writing instruments and scrolls. And guess what they found out? They found out that not only was Moses not preliterate, but the culture in which Moses lived, a significant number of the people in that culture were not only literate, but they were sophisticated and well-educated. Now the Bible had said that for some 4,000 years, but it wasn't until the 1800s that we were able to corroborate that by digging it up. And guess what? It was all the secular historians who said, Oops. You see, good history gets the details right. A second example. The Hittite nation. Several places in the Bible, the Bible mentions the Hittite nation. And for centuries, there was no record in secular history of the Hittite nation. Nothing had ever been discovered of them. Nothing was known of them. The only place you could find any record of them or any writing about them was in the Bible. And once again, secular historians said, see, the Bible's got bad history. There are no Hittites. You know, that's just made up. That's somebody out there dreaming stuff up. It's like the rest of the Bible. You can't rely on it. It's not reliable. 1906, Bogoskoy, Turkey. A fellow by the name of Hugo Winkler, who was a German cuneiform expert. Now, cuneiform is a it's a form of writing where you take a stylus that has a pointed end and you make pointed indentations in a clay tablet while it's soft and wet, and then you dry it, and of course those clay indentations then become permanent, and based upon how all those little shapes are, that's how you write. Well, he was a cuneiform expert, and he had heard about a recent discovery in Bogoskoy, Turkey. So he basically spent the rest of his life in Bogoskoy, Turkey, and, and here's what he found. He unearthed five temples, a fortified citadel, and a storeroom with more than 10,000 clay tablets. The tablets not only confirmed the existence of the Hittite nation, they recorded treaties, with well-known historical figures 
even those as well known as Ramesses II. They revealed the name of the Hittite capital as Hattusha, and they led to the discovery of more than 40 different Hittite cities. Now that happened a hundred years ago. But for the previous 19 centuries plus, secular people said, see, the Bible just has bad history. No, in fact, I want to, want to give you a couple of, of statements. Okay? Here's a fact, and you probably filled it in already. The Bible not only has good history, it has outstanding history. Let me show you how outstanding it is. Take a look at this next illustration. Okay, Let me read you a couple of passages of Scripture. Jesus said a young man, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers. Those of you who are familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan, that's how it begins. Now I want you to underline the word down or circle the word down because it's important what I'm going to teach you. In Mark chapter 10, Talking about a different time in Jesus' life, it says they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. You can circle the word up. You see, when you and I talk about going up or down to a place, we talk about going up, we talk about going north, right? We talk about going down, we talk about going south. That's why we go down to L.A., but we go up to Ukiah, right? And when we're going east or west, we go what direction? We go over, correct? That's not how... The Bible writers were. The Bible writers were not talking about north, south, east, or west. They were talking about altitude. And when you climbed up to a place, by the way, these people walked wherever they went. That's probably how they knew it was up or down, right? Yeah. They, when they went up to Jerusalem, you know, from the floor of the Judean wilderness, where that second passage is, where that's where they started, from the floor of the Judean wilderness, up to the city of Jerusalem is a climb of more than 2,500 feet. You think you might know it was up? Yeah. And when the Bible says the man went from down from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jerusalem sits three or 4,000 feet in elevation above sea level, and the city of Jericho is almost 1,300 feet below sea level. Now, now here's what I want you to understand. There are literally thousands of references in the Bible to people going up or down as they went from one location to another. And did you know that everyone we can check, every single one of them is correct? There's a researcher who has written about that. His name is William Lane Craig. And speaking of only just one writer of the Bible, the writer whose name is Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts, here's what William Lane Craig concluded. Luke writes with uncanny geographical precision. I'm amazed at Luke's grasp of government as he cites the official names of the prelates, magistrates, proconsuls, and governors of his day. It would have been pretty easy to get at least one of those wrong. Luke gets every single one of them exactly right. He gets it right when he describes terrain and rivers and mountains and valleys and wells and buildings, and even the coinage of his day. It all squares with the other historical references, every single word. Now, once again, the Bible's not primarily a book about history, but even when God casually mentions history, He's right on. Always has been, always will be. Because why? The Bible's not filled with bad history. 
The Bible actually has outstanding history. Let's go to the second thing that this guy said. The Bible's filled with worse science. Now I want you to know that scientists and theologians approach the world from the exact opposite viewpoints, and that's why sometimes there's a conflict. You know something about scientists? Scientists don't tend to believe anything that they can't observe with their eyes, replicate in their in their laboratories, or explain. Correct? Now, historians kind of do that with history too, which is why the historians said of the Bible, it's just bad history. And they said that and said that until it took several centuries of digging before they finally figured out, oh, I guess that isn't such bad history after all. Now, scientists are in the middle of doing the same thing because the Bible, although not a book of science, makes some statements about science that not all scientists agree with, not because they can disprove it, but purely because they can't prove it. And because they can't replicate it or duplicate it or observe it with their own eyes, they have a tendency to say, I can't rely on that. And you know what that means? Just like it took the, it took the historians centuries of digging, it's going to take scientists centuries of performing experiments before they finally will come to a point of understanding what God has revealed. Let me give you a couple of examples, however, of a growing common ground between the world's most well-respected scientists and statements in the Bible. And these are things that are just taking place in our day and time. Let's start, first of all, how many of you have heard of the Big Bang? Yeah, that's virtually everybody in here. I'm, I'm going to choose to call it initial force. For a long time, and Bob talked a little bit about this yesterday, so I'm going to kind of, skim, not yesterday, last Sunday, I'm going to kind of skim right through it. But for a long time, there was kind of a, a simple formula that, for the explanation of the world that kind of went like this. Matter plus limitless time plus random chance equals anything can happen. Right? So if you start with matter and you have random chance and you give it enough time, millions, billions of years, eventually anything can happen which is why you see what you see in the world. It's a little bit like you take the parts of a watch, you put them in a paper sack and you shake them. If you are able to shake that sack for billions of years, eventually one of those combinations is going to give you a watch. Well, we can't really prove that because no one's been able to shake the sack for billions of years. But, but you know, mentally we can kind of get our mind around that, that kind of anything is possible if you give it enough time. Well, for, for several decades, that was kind of accepted, except for there was a giant hole or missing ingredient in that particular formula. So there's a formula that you have to go to that's kind of before that one. And that's a formula that kind of goes like this. Nothing plus X amount of time equals something. In other words, how long do you have to sit with nothing before nothing becomes something? And you get something out of nothing. Because that first formula started with matter. Right? Well, not only does it start with matter, but there's a growing number of the most well-renowned scientists in the world who are saying, not only do you have to start with matter, but there had to be some sort of purposeful force that acted on that matter that created this Big Bang. Oh, 
a purposeful force that acted on matter. What was it God said? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved on the waters. The Spirit of God acted on the shapeless, formless matter and brought it into order. Wow. Could it possibly be then that God was that initial force? I think the Bible would say that unequivocally. Let's take another area. Got any science majors out there? There's a few of us odd ducks. No, never mind. All right. The first law of thermodynamics has a subset. And the subset is what's commonly referred to in the scientific world as the conservation of energy. The conservation of energy, simply stated, goes like this. Energy can neither be created nor lost. That's what it says. Now, the Bible has said that for a a long, long time. In fact, I want to read to you two passages of Scripture that speak to it. Here's the first passage, Genesis chapter 2. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all of the host of them were finished. I want you to underline the word finished. And on the seventh day, God ended. Underline the word ended, His work which He had done. And He rested. Underline the word rested on the seventh day from all of His work which He had done. In other words, when God was creating this world and infusing it with energy and bringing it into being, there was a point at which God says, that's all the energy it's going to get. That's all the creativity it's going to get. I am done bringing that about. And so, no more energy No more world is going to be created. That's it. Well, it took a long time for scientists to actually begin to uncover and discover what God had said there. And it wasn't until the 1600s that even the best and brightest scientists in the world began to notice something. And they began to notice that everything in the world seemed to be in a status of decay except for one thing. Energy. Everything else seemed to be decaying, but not energy. In fact, there seemed to be a constant amount of energy in the world, and no matter what scientific experiment you did, no matter what physical thing you did in the world, it did not create energy, nor did it destroy energy, but the amount of energy in the universe seemed to be constant and was therefore different from everything else. And in fact, there was a guy who sat down and did a whole lot of work on this. His name was Wilhelm Wilhelm Leibniz. And he came up with what was the first formulated statement that eventually morphed into what we commonly today call the conservation of energy. And here's what he called it. He called it the vis viva which literally being interpreted means living force. In other words, he said there's something about energy that's different from everything else, even though they may all be related. There's something about it that's different in that it energy seems to be eternal. Well now, here's what the Bible says. The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God and He sustains everything by, his, by the mighty power of His command. You know who it is 
that is that living force that keeps the amount of energy in our world constant. It's Jesus. He sustains it by His powerful Word. Not creating new. God's done with that. But He doesn't let it decay and go away either. He keeps it constant. Now that was in the Bible for 2,000 years. 1,600 years before man even began to pick up on it. We go to a third area. This is an area I know that you've heard of. Most of you have heard of the origin of the species, right? Well, the two cornerstones of, of Darwinian evolution, the two cornerstones are, are, are these two processes, okay? And the first is, is the process of natural selection, and the second is the process of the transmigration of species. And, and kind of simply put, the deal is that mutations occur in all living things, and mutations are, are genetic variations that are not considered normal. Most of them are not very good, but a few of them tend to, to add strength to the species. And so the postulation is that through the natural selection in which the stronger outsurvive the weaker, that these genetic mutations, if they are significant enough, would be enough to create new species from old species and would therefore enable the transmigration of species and therefore the whole uh, ladder of evolution where we started with very simple organisms and through transmigration of species have ended up in the very complex world where we are today. Now, that stands in direct contrast to what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1. God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit. Here's what you want to underline according to its kind. Whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so, and the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed. Here's that phrase again, according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself. There's the phrase again, according to its kind. In fact, if you were to read Genesis chapter 1, that phrase, according to its kind, is in there no less than ten times. Now, on a somewhat humorous but very serious note, those of you who are pregnant are very grateful for that passage. Because it means when you go to the hospital to give birth, you know you're getting a human. Got it? Yeah. Now, because for about 15 decades now, many scientists have questioned that very concept. Okay? They've looked at the Bible and said the Bible's filled with bad science. Okay? But there's a growing group of well-renowned scientists, some of the top scientists in the world, who although they're not ready yet to fully endorse the Bible, they are finding common ground with what the Bible says because as they work in their laboratories and as they carefully examine the fossil records, they are finding that things do indeed tend, in fact, always they bring forth after their own kind. In fact, no one no less than Stephen Jay Gould, and if you're at all into science, you will have heard of him, a well-renowned American paleontologist. Here's what he said recently. Species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on earth. In fact, they appear in the fossil record looking much the same as when they finally disappear. You know what he's really saying? Yeah. We keep saying that there's the transmigration 
of species, but we're not finding it in the fossil record, and we're certainly not finding it in the world we observe today. It just doesn't exist. We might not know everything about how God brought the world into existence and framed it the way it is, other than the fact that it happened at His purpose and at His command and, and so forth. But we do know this. One of the things that God says is that things bring forth after their own kind. And guess what? That scientific statement stands without any disproof, no matter how much scientific research we put into it to try to disprove it. Because the Bible's not bad science. It's actually great science. It's wonderful science. Let's take our last category, and that is psychology. Is the Bible really filled with terrible psychology? Well, I want to say one little disclaimer, and then I'm going to read you a couple of statements. I've been a pastor for 37 years, and... I've instructed people from God's Word. I preach every Sunday directly from God's Word. And when people come to me with marital problems or they come to me with, with the situations in life and they really need help dealing with them, I take them directly to the Bible. And I do that because I believe that the Bible doesn't have bad psychology. It has the greatest psychology in the world. And if I didn't believe that, I couldn't live with myself and do what I do. Now, why do I believe that the Bible has the greatest psychology in the world, even though it's not a manual on psychology? I'll tell you why. Because in my job, I also get to see the catastrophes of bad psychology. Of people who have bought into different psych, just different systems of psychology, and now that the fruit of that psychology it's starting to come to pass in their life and they're freaked out. Let me just identify for you just four, and there would be many more, but just four bad psychologies, but they are so prevalent in our world today. Bad psychology, first of all, is any psychology that places man at the center of his world. Huh. When you take people and you put them at the center of their world, then people reserve for themselves the right to determine what's actually right or wrong. Instead of seeking God and some eternal moral authority, they say, we are the moral authority. And if we decide something is right, it'll be right. And if we decide something is wrong, it'll be wrong. I tell you what, when you put man at the center of his world, he becomes self-obsessed. He becomes self um, absorbed to the point that he will alienate his spouse, he will alienate his children, he will alienate his friends and neighbors because it's all about him. By the way, you see any of that around you? Yeah. Any psychology that puts man at the center is just bad psychology. It leads to destructive behavior that eventually becomes self-destructive. Second, bad psychology. By the way, you can buy books on this kind of psychology. In fact, most of the books that you would read in a psychological section of our local bookstores, most of them are going to be built on one of these four psychologies that I'm going to give you. Okay? Here's another one. Bad psychology is any psychology that says the aim of life is the satiation of my desires. There's all sorts of psychology that says look out for number one. 
how to be successful in this life. You know, listening to the radio yesterday. The only difference between you and the millionaires of this world is they have decided to be millionaires and live life right. There you go. The satiation of personal desires. This psychology would tell you that the aim of this life is to get as many toys as you can and die playing with them. It's just out there. Do you know what happens? When we decide to make the aim of life, the satiation of our personal desires, we become the slave of our own desires. And I have a question to ask you. Are your desires all good? What do you think? So what happens if you become the slave of your desires? Yeah, we get in serious trouble. Let's look at a third one. Bad psychology is any psychology that says the way to deal with anger is ventilate it. I know you've been taught. When you get mad, what should you do? Instead of punching somebody, go get a pillow or put your fist through the wall or go out and yell and scream or do do something that ventilates your anger. Now, listen, I agree. Punching a pillow is better than punching a person. I definitely agree with that. But when you're all done punching the pillow, have you dealt with the source of your anger yet? It's still there. And until you learn how to deal with the source of the anger, you're just going to have to punch pillow after pillow after pillow. But on the inside, nothing is going to change in your life because any psychology that says that's what you need to do with anger is at best trite. The Bible teaches you how to actually deal with anger in such a way that it doesn't destroy you or become the predominant factor in your life. And last of all, bad psychology is any psychology that says guilt doesn't matter. So many people have spent countless thousands of dollars with going to see counselors and a counselor would say to you, you know what your problem is? Your problem is guilt and here's what you need to know about guilt. Guilt is something you put on yourself. You shouldn't feel guilty for what you're doing. Okay, If doing that causes you to feel guilty, then you should either stop doing it or change your definition of guilt. Because in the end, guilt really doesn't matter. Friends, guilt erodes the human spirit from the inside out. It's horrible. And any psychology that tells you guilt doesn't matter is just plain bad psychology. The Bible addresses all of those and many, many more. It's great psychology. As we close, I want to say this. The Bible is a very unique book. I gave you some facts and figures a while ago. The Bible was written by over 40 different authors on three different continents over a 1,400-year span of time, most of whom never even talked to each other they wrote about the most sensitive issues in life, issues like morality, where the world came from, is there a God? If there is, what is God like? What's this world coming to? What's the end of the world going to be like? What should we be doing while we live here? You can't even discuss those with your closest personal friends and agree on all those, right? Yeah. Think about that for a minute. Forty different authors, three different continents, 1,400 different years. Three different languages. 
And yet there's a commonality that runs through them. Why? Because God breathed the Bible into existence. I want to give you three very simple statements as we close. You know what the Bible's going to teach you about science? It's the most basic teaching in the Bible about science, and here's what it is. This world and everything in it has its origin in God. And you know, when all the experimentation is done and all the digging is done, scientists are going to come to understand that there's only one explanation for this world, and that is something vastly superhuman and purposeful for which only God fits the definition. With regard to history, here's the overwhelming message of Scripture, and that is history began with God creating man, and it will end with man standing before God. That's the really important thing about history you need to know. And the Bible's very clear about that. And with regard to psychology, the Bible teaches this very clearly. You were created for an eternal purpose. And when you begin to live every day of this life with your eternal purpose in mind, you'll have the best psychology in the world. You will live today as it's supposed to be lived. Because if you want to put somebody on a destructive uh, track in life, you tell them there is no accountability, there is no eternity, you just live for today, and you see how short and irresponsible their life becomes. And miserable for them and people around them because it's not until we understand eternity that the present makes sense. Worship band's going to sing a song for you right now. I wanted to challenge you. I know it's, it's a fun song, and, um, and uh, so I, I just want to challenge you to stand up and enjoy the song. If you know the song, you can sing along with them. But it's a, a whole bunch of stuff that comes out of the platform of the wonderful evidence we've talked about. It, it, it says all these things that we believe. So stand and enjoy the creed. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information and past sermons, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.